and welcome back or welcome to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, coaching buddy, Jonathan Marcus. John, what is going on? You know what the clock says, man. The clock's striking. And the clock's striking at time to give people what they want. Let's go. All right. Another fun episode coming your way. Before we dive into this week's episode, you know what's coming. It's your reminder that the Scholar Program is your one-stop shop for everything coaching-related. If you want to become a better coach, get on board. We are When we are recording this, we are actually preparing for our live Zoom in two days where we, you know, meet with our scholars, go deep on a topic, and, you know, have a lot of fun. In between, they get access to gosh, hundreds upon hundreds of items of content from video, presentations, training programs, full training logs of everyone in the world who is good at anything. And as we have talked about in the last couple episodes, John and I are fiercely working on breaking down the day-to-day training of the man, the myth, the legend, the American record holder in the mile, Alan Webb. And the fastest human being over one mile over the last two decades not one but two decades super shoes included time to sign up time to sign up join everyone we man i it's just been a flood of people signing up people getting ready coaches getting ready for cross-country season fall marathon season it's the place to be Yes, we guarantee you will be challenged coaching wise we have so much information out there there is nowhere else. I'm going to put that uh, stamp on it. There is nowhere else you can find this much information on a diverse array of coaches, athletes, uh, science, just about everything you could ask for. That's right. Time to level up. So let's jump into this week's episode, which is why a perfectionist mindset could be holding you and your athletes back. So Let's let's start with defining maybe what a perfectionist mindset is, John. To me, you know, a perfectionist mindset is really a mindset where you want everything to be super tidy. Uh, all the boxes are ticked, all the T's are crossed, and all the I's are dotted, and things are the way they are. And it's more of a static mindset because you have this static uh, ideal about how things should be and what things need to happen in order for other things to occur. And it's also a a permission mindset. I can't do X unless I've done A, B, C. And, you know, while on the surface that may seem really enticing and accurate, you know, the evidence and the reality just aren't that nice and neat and tidy. It's actually very messy. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I think often we think of perfectionists and we think, oh, I'm doing everything possible. I am in control and making sure all the, you know, I's are dotted, T's are crossed. We've got everything set. I'm doing all of my, you know, training, all of my stretching, all of my prevention work. And we think it makes us robust, but actually what it does is it makes us fragile because we we get dependent, right? 
we get dependent on this false impossible state that is perfection that is striving to make sure that we have everything that we're doing everything possible and it makes us fragile because it's unattainable and if we keep striving for this kind of unattainable state if we keep striving for making sure that everything is perfect it backfires because life inevitably gets in the way and life inevitably makes sure that like the perfection we're trying to find is not going to occur on race day or where whenever else we're trying to chase it. And it's this idea of flawlessness, right? That there's no flaws and that that's what training and preparation is about is creating a flawless athlete. Um, however, you know, the corollary to this or the contrary to this is actually revisionists, right? Revisionism and being able to revise is what we are doing in athletics, coaching, and life. And so the hard part about a perfectionist mindset is the static concept where it's like, all right, at age five, I decided I want to be a doctor and I'm going to be a doctor no matter what. And then by the time you get through kind of medical school and your residencies, you realize like the lifestyle and the culture of that hospital setting is just not healthy or not something that you are uh, engaged with. But yet deciding rather than like changing course because, uh, you know, you're listening to yourself, we have this sunk cost fallacy where we're like, well, I've invested so much time and energy. I just can't do anything else. I have to keep doing it. This you end up being poor and being more stressed out and living less high quality of life for that rather than dropping it and changing gears. Yeah, you know, it 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 really gets you to a point where you're chasing things that don't need to be chased. You know, I think it's almost like you're chasing the minutia. And for a while this was really celebrated um and for instance the British cycling where they're like obsessing over all these details and it's like marginal gains, marginal gains. And we talked about that. That's not what marginal gains is or what you're chasing in a previous episode. But it, it it's interesting because when you, you chase the minutiae to try and perfect everything or try and think that like everything has to be right. As I said, what, what ends up happening is you're spending mental energy or you're spending actual physical energy on things that don't have the payoff or might even not you know be a net negative uh well that that mental energy or physical energy could be spent elsewhere the the myth of perfection is is well what undermines it is that we have a finite resource of attention time energy that we can direct towards something right and if it's not inexhaustible so if we're sitting there saying okay we need to have, you know, all of these different items in our program from lifting to stretching to general strength to running mileage to running intervals to long runs to being perfect on our recovery, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, something's going to break because we can't devote that much physical, mental and emotional energy towards something without draining our bucket. 
And the other thing that it does too is it also limits your scope, right? So if the concept is to be perfect at and flawless at an activity or facets or parts of an activity, then we end up like focus focusing over focusing too much on those parts and think that that's the holy grail and that okay if I just run a hundred miles a week for a year I'll get really good or if I um, can do four by a mile at this pace with this recovery then that will give me permission to run this fast and you know the thing about adaptation and the thing that Steve and I like talk a lot about is uh, with adaptation is we still don't know a whole lot about the adaptive mechanisms of the human body. We know a little bit and we really, you know, from a kind of scientific evidence and also experiential point of view, but we tend to over obsess about what we do know when we're perfectionists and actually under obsess or ignore what we don't know. And that's the key, right? That's what we're really doing here as coaches and athletes is we're doing experiments, we're scientists, you know, training is a hypothesis. And it's always, yes, N01, and there are opportunities to, um, you know, take that N01 and extrapolate it out to the masses, but it, that's kind of fuzzy. Like training really only works for that one person. And sure, we can extract a couple best practices from that example. And that's the whole point of say like the scholar program. And what Steve and I have found in our coaching journey is it's best to be exposed to how everyone successful ever trained because there's clues in each one of their preparation style or what they did that helped catapult them to success. But it's not a simple copy and paste to your situation. Yeah. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because it really, uh, perfectionism really has that narrowing or constriction effect, right? Because it, it makes it seem like the thing right in front of us is the thing, right? It's the item that is most important that is going to make that, that difference. And what happens is when our world narrows and constricts on something, then we give that our attention and our, that focus and and that mental energy to improve that thing. Well, if that thing only gives us, you know, a small fraction of a percentage improvement, then we're spending this time focus on, on something that isn't worth it, right? And I think that is where that mindset gets us in the way gets it in the way is we get stuck obsessing over the details that sure effort technically speaking matter to a degree but probably not as much and probably not within our control so that we can alter them in any meaningful way as we'd like to think and the example i'd give is so perfectionist mindset on a workout okay in the grand scheme of things, John, and you and I know this pretty well, is, you know, if we do 25 minutes at, let's say, a threshold effort or 22 minutes or 27 minutes, we don't have the uh, specificity of knowing the stress and adaptation to really tell us what one is better on that day. 
right? We can look for clues, right? We can see how people are running, how they're fatigued, like what their body is telling us. But we can't tell you whether, you know, 27, 25, 23, 22 is the optimal dose, right? So we just ballpark it. And we ballpark it based on, you know, what we're guessing, how long our athlete can run at this pace, what fatigue signals they're sending back, how they're looking in the run, and you don't obsess about it. If they end at 24 minutes or 23 minutes and you had planned 25 minutes, you know what? You walk away and you go like, all right, that's what we got today. If you have this perfectionist mindset where you sit there and you say, okay, no, like I need 25 minutes of threshold this week. I need this type of workout. I need to do 10 by 400 in 61.5 or faster. You know, what happens is when you deviate, when it, it creates this un uh, sustainable or unattainable standard that puts us into thinking that this small minutia of a detail matters to the extreme. And maybe I'm, I'm harping on it too much, but you see this often in coaching um, and even in athletes. When you watch workouts and let's say 90% of the workout is spot on and great, but then an athlete struggles that last rep, maybe they're doing 10 400s and nine of them are great. And then the 10th kind of sucks. And I have seen coaches who literally think that the workout is ruined and athletes is ruined because the 10th one didn't meet expectations, right? It becomes, it goes from a positive, Hey, this is, this is going to help us to a negative and neither the athlete or the coach because like the workout wasn't perfect when you sit there and you think, man, we nailed 90% of that. Who cares? Let's move on. And that's, uh, I mean, I laugh at that because it's like, we've all been there and it's essentially a product of this. When you're a novice, when you don't know what you're doing, you want security, you want reassurance. Reassurance is the most important thing. And as a, someone with a, limited scope of knowledge and experience as a coach you want to be looked to as by your athletes as someone that has answers and that they can put faith and trust in and a lot of times what we do is we uh, instill or whether it's consciously or subconsciously an aura of control and command where we control what's going on and we command people what to do and that control and command mindset is very common with the novice or um, you know perfectionist type coach however what the reality is is as you evolve you get way more fluid and you get to more of a um, listen and learn approach where you're listening through observation through communication through dialogue to the feedback that is being given to you either by the athlete or what the athlete is able to do on that day and then you're trying to learn why why are they doing it like that? And that's where, you know, I discovered very early in my coaching career that the revisionist mindset is the best. And to be a good revisionist, or as like Dan Path calls it, to have plan B's, C's, D's, E's ready to go on a workout uh, day or, or a training week, you have to have a really broad base and scope of knowledge. And again, coming back to why the scholar program is so freaking important is... Steve and I figured this out early on 
um, because we were met with different problems from athletes and we didn't have the answers. And we were humble enough to say, we don't have the answer. I don't know. And either seek out a mentor, seek out um, some type of knowledge and go find it. But without that broad base of knowledge, you can't create new and innovative and appropriate solutions in the moment for that unexpected um, problem that is being faced with. And so when I realized this as a coach early on, what I used to do was I would write the whole season's training plan for the high school team I was coaching. Here's all the 800-meter workouts. Here's all the 15 workouts. And I thought, oh, man, I'm so smart. I'm so dedicated. I got the whole, you know, it's all periodized. It looks neat and tidy, and it's awesome. And we're going to progress like this and that. And mileage is going to go down. Velocity and intensity is going to go up, yada, yada, yada. And they'll just get faster. And then I'd post the workouts for the week every week on Monday on the training board uh, by the track and say, all right, here's what you guys are doing. So it's clear roadmap to success. You know exactly what you're doing. Here's the syllabus. And on Tuesday, half the team couldn't do what was planned for Tuesday. <laughs> because the reality is life got in the way. Things got in the way. People were fatigued. People stayed up late. Uh, people were injured. People were sick. People were... And so then I, as a coach, I was like, oh, no, it's not going to plan. Well, we got to... We, we can't not do what we planned on Tuesday. So we got to, quote, unquote, make up the assignment on the next day or roll it over to the following Thursday or whatever. And then you start to just bombard athletes with excessive amounts of work and then it, this activity they're doing is actually not achieving anything is actually retarding their progress rather than enhancing. Oh man, we have all been there before, right? I think it it's is. like one of the common first steps in coaching. <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, what I'll just call it the disease of over planning, right? Yeah. Where you plan, 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 because you need that certainty, right? And you feel like this is the effort that goes into it. This is great. This is a great example for the perfectionist mindset. You plan the whole season. Every workout's done. You've gone over the progressions, you know, specifically. It all looks beautiful on paper. In fact, in a lot of coaches' education, the, like, exam or the, and I'm doing air quotes here, the exam or thing that allows you to pass an endurance education systems is like creating training programs, right? It's hey, model an entire season of this athlete. We give you some information. Now create the, all the training. And that's great for understanding training principles, but it's horrible in terms of application because you don't do that. I mean, you do it when you're young. I did it. You did it. Every coach did it. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think what happens over time is you start instead of having specifics, you have generality is on, on, no, I'm going to emphasize this at this period, these workouts, you know, I'm going to keep these in mind here. It's not like you don't train or you don't plan, but you have this sketch, right? Um, and these principles that help guide you. I remember uh, a while back, uh, talking to, uh, some people in, uh, in, in the NBA, uh, for a team and they, they put it pretty succinctly with one of their coaches when I was talking about coaching they said well you know so and so at the beginning of his career had this huge big playbook and as his career progressed that 
playbook became thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. And he had a couple, you know, uh, several key plays, but then some principles to guide. And I think that's, that's the same kind of deal. That's the same thing that happens, you know, in, in coaching as well as, you know, we, we move from detailed perfectionist specific out to broad. And I'm I'm glad you know another thing you brought brought up that I think uh, deserves to put have a pin in it is this idea of broadening to allow you to kind of see things more clearly and connect ideas. So when we narrow and we have this perfectionist, what happens is we get really good at the minute details, right? But then we miss everything else. If we broaden our our worldview through understanding different training, understanding different coaching, understanding the history of training and coaching and how we've progressed, if we broaden that out, that allows us to actually solve more problems because we have a wider base off of which to connect things to. It's not, hey, we see this problem and we only have this one hammer to fix the problem with because our worldview is so narrow on these are the few things that matter and need to be perfected. It's, Hey, we have this entire toolbox and we might not be experts on every single one of these tools, but we know how to utilize them. And if for whatever happens, we get an athlete who needs this obscure tool. Guess what? You know, we've read about it, talked about it, heard about it we can at least attempt to use it correctly. And I think that is such an important part. And as you, you, you know, put, it's why we started the scholar program. And really, honestly, the scholar program started out of us being like, oh, let's put all this information together in one spot for ourselves. And turned out, hey, this is a fantastic resource, not to the belabor of the point, but that, that's what the coach's journey is all about. Yeah, there's a great John Paul Sitchi quote, um, you know, the existentialist philosopher, who says, I found everything perfectly clear, and I really, that I really understood absolutely nothing. To understand is to change, to go beyond oneself. I, and, that's, and that is the truth, right? Like this evolution of understanding and this movement from a very static mindset to a very fluid mindset can seem really scary. Because this, you know, living in the world of chaos, right, being able to navigate the fog of chaos, as we've talked about before with the, say, the John Boyd OODA loop, um, at first to the novice can be seem crippling because you have no tools, right, and you have no experience. So you want certainty. You want a formulaic approach. You want Daniel's distance running formula. Because if I do threshold on Thursdays every week, I'll get better and I got to do 25 minutes of it. And afterwards I'll do two hundreds at, you know, rep pace with this much recovery. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a really good deal for the novice because it gives them clear direction in a very chaotic uh, and sometimes noisy environment. However, for the master coach, the key is to know that you don't know. And know what you do know, but also know there's a lot you don't know. And keep trying to know just a little bit more. And you see this fluency with amazing master coaches like 
an igloy, for example, right? Igloy would just show up to the track every day and coach on quote unquote feel. Why? Well, because he understood the direction that the training was trying to progress the organism or the athlete. And we know when you look at all the training variables, right? Intensity, density, volume, and frequency. Time and time again, the most important training variable is frequency. How frequent are you exposing and being exposed to a certain type of training stress? Because that's going to help influence the direction of your adaptations, right? So the goal is, and this is why like, I'm a big fan of the block training model of periodization. And it's just a model, right? It's, it's a map, but it's not the territory. we got to remember that. The, the reason, though, is because the block training model identifies key areas of development for an athlete and then says, okay, we're going to be really frequent in our exposure of stress and make this the highest priority uh, uh, training stress that we're going to expose this athlete to for this period. However, we got to remember everything is everything, right? And so we have two, you know, essentially we've created a binary approach to training where um, there's a group of um, coaches and a group uh, and a lot of education that's focused on um, part uh, training. So uh, extrapolating training into parts, right? And so then there's also at the other end of the continuum, whole training, right? Where you do actually the thing that is the closest um, activity to the sporting movement and sporting exercise. And this is where Bonderchuk understood, right? He understood part and whole and transfer training. Well, we tend to think of transfer training in terms of just basic gross motor qualities, right? Uh, speed, strength, endurance, coordination, uh, and flexibility. However, there's a sensory motor approach, right? So if the sensory component is not wedded to the gross motor qualities that we just uh, identified, then that transfer is not going to be as effective. And so that sensory motor approach is critical. So this is why doing scrimmages for athletes where it's there's unpredictability, you're just playing the game or racing frequently and having preparatory races, whether they're eights or crosses or road races, are just as important, if not more important training activities than having a really quality sesh and post it on the IG, right? Because you see this all the time and Steve and I belabor the point in other podcasts about athletes who are great time trialers, but poor, poor championship racers because they're different sensory motor activities. In a time trial, the sensory feedback in the external internal conditions is very scripted and very succinct and very perfected. In a championship setting, it's often in adverse uh, environmental conditions you're not used to, lots of heat, humidity, wind, you name it, or in cross country sometimes, extreme cold or mud. And also in an unpredictable setting, who's going to do what, right? And this is where that robust revisionist mindset comes into play. And I'm always uh, reminded of, of the uh, the John uh, Nugugi quote, who, if we remember, John Nugugi was a Kenyan distance runner who won the 1988 uh, Seoul Olympics 5,000 meters in very dramatic fashion. He took the lead after one um, kilometer and led like 50 meters for the entire rest of the race and ended up winning by 30 meters. And his famous quote is, don't waste good time. So if you wake up 
and you are just supercharged and ready to go and you have as an athlete that what it means I feel good today I'm ready to like do something of really high quality or intensity but your control and command coach said today's recovery day of three miles but you feel really good the Kenyan philosophy is just take it now so if I feel good go hammer today you know and it's okay if tomorrow is a recovery day because I maximized the day I felt good us as coaches tend to be hubristic in thinking we can predict or massage every day that an athlete's going to feel good and then to your point Steve tend to over dramatize when an athlete quote-unquote fails a workout by failing to hit the pre-prescribed split for the last one or two reps on that day and maybe it just wasn't their day because they weren't feeling good for a variety of complex reasons, but yet we struggle with, because we struggle with complexity and multifactorial inputs, we tend to want to ignore them and just focus on these really, as you, you said, the 1% marginal gains, the minutia, and this concept of the oversimplified model of what we can control when we're actually ignoring and turning it back to the complex reality that is life. Yep. I mean, I couldn't have said it better there. It's just, it's, um, it's the complexity that we often, uh, often miss in our own training and coaching because we try to strive for this certainty in terms of planning and structure that we all love, but often, you know, backfires. And I'm reminded of this study that was out a couple of years ago. I think it was on triathletes that looked at uh, training improvement in the bike. And all they did was they looked at uh, training, like gave everyone the same training plan for a couple of weeks, right? And then they tracked their stress levels, like perceived stress, like life stress levels. And the group with a high life stress levels didn't improve they saw zero percent improvement and the group that just happened to have lower life stress levels saw i think 19 percent improvement in uh, their cycling power output and that study always reminds me that often we control so much in terms of the training aspect but in this one little study what was it, it wasn't the training that impacted but it was whether they had life stressors or not, right? And which is something that, that so often we don't control for, you know? We don't th sit there and say, okay, you know, this is going to happen. Good, but good coaches um, who, you know, to use your paradigm you introduced earlier, uh, are revisionist instead of perfectionist. Like, understand this to a degree. You know, I've, uh, I'm good friends with the uh, Rice University cross-country women's coach, Jim Bevan. And just about every time they have exam time come up in the fall before cross-country, they have like midterm exams, Rice heavily academic school. He always tells me, he's like, yeah, it's that time of year. Like, I'm shutting down a bunch of kids. Not all of them. But a bunch of kids, and what he means by shutting down is, hey, stop showing up to morning practice. 
you know, get some easy running in and we'll figure it out. And this is in the middle towards, you know, middle end of their cross country season. And they always have a very good women's program who is on the cusp of, of going to NCAA championship, not qualifying for nationals. And he's shutting it down. Not because, oh man, you know, I overdid the training, but because he recognizes and realizes in that moment when he's watching his athletes, He'll sit there and be like, nah, it's it's exam time. These these gals are a little bit fried. We're not going to get anything out of it. So I'm altering my plan. I'm adjusting things um, based on, you know, where we're at and the feedback and I'm I'm seeing. And again, if you look at coaches like Igloy, what he was a master of and what we don't do as much anymore is he would test athletes. No, not test athletes with like some physiology or some, you know, heart rate or HRV band because this was the 50s and 60s. But he would, you know, before deciding the workout for that day, he would have his athletes go through his warm up. He'd watch them, right? Sometimes he'd have athletes go through a first set of something, you know, Oh, let's do some some two hundreds, right? At varying paces or in Igloy's times, varying efforts, right? Good speed, fresh speed, whatever have you. He'd have them build. Yep, have them build up into it, and then only after that 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 kind of first set would he then decide. Up, oh, this is what the next set is. This is what the next you know. This is what the workout is going to curtail, because sometimes they wouldn't look good. And he changed, you know, he changed the the workout based on that feedback, right? And I think that is, you know, brilliant, really, and something that we could learn from as coaches because so often what happens is, you know, even good coaches now will watch the workout and will say, yeah, somebody, this guy doesn't look right. You know, this gal doesn't quite look right. But the workout is on a paper. We've already written it. We've already sent it out to our athletes. They already know what they're going to do. It's a Monday, which is a workout day, or a Tuesday, which is a workout day, whatever particular pattern you have. And you start thinking, ah, you know what? We always do our hard workout on, on Tuesday. And if we move it, that means we have to move our session, you know, our Friday session. And if we have to move that, then it interferes with the long run. And then that sets us up for a weird week next week with a race. And we start overthinking it on like, well, this, this throws everything off that we had planned down the line. So, you know what, we're just gonna, we're just gonna, you know, bulldoze through this. And sometimes that bulldozing through or that proceeding with the plan is the right choice, but other times it isn't, you know, Canova, uh, Renato Canova is famous for saying, you know, or outlining when to proceed and when to shut things down and take a couple days easy. And his, his kind of, you know, decision-making framework for that is pretty easy is, is the physiology, is the physiological response the most important or is the, you know, pace or rhythm or mechanical, you know, what we're after. Right. So in other words, is it really important that they run 60 seconds for a 400 because we're trying to ingrain or, you know, bring together that 
rhythm of running 60 for 400 plus the physiology and all that stuff? Or is it okay if they start running 62s and 63s, but we've got the lactate levels high enough to give us this physiological response? And we're just trying to train the physiology a little bit. And if the pace suffers a little bit, you know, so what? We're okay this time. Maybe not every time, but we're okay this time. And I think having some sort of decision-making framework um, like that, whether it's Canova or whether it's Igloy, is important because that gives you the freedom to break away from this perfectionist planning that so often entraps us. And that's, you know, people struggle with that too. Like Canova's foundational or fundamental period in the performance period or specific period People struggle with that because there's this concept of perfectionism that, you know, lends itself to distance running where you can you can track and you can overly obsess numerically on how many miles a week you're running, how, what's the pace of that, what's the pace of the workout, et cetera. And there's a time and a place. And what you see is the best people, the best athletes, the best coaches understand very clearly the principles of the time and the place. And as Steve said, the physiological versus the neurological emphasis. And, you know, Canova, he says, what we're trying to do is teach the body, right? We're trying to teach the body in the fundamental period in the physiology to elevate the fuel. And then in the specific period, that's when we're trying to teach the mind. And that's what he means is physiological versus neurological. So yeah, you shut it down in the specific period if you're not learning the pace. But in the fundamental period, you keep going because you're trying to just learn the effort. And so the effort is what matters. And a lot of athletes I work with, when we're in that period, I say, look, all you're trying to do is just beat the weakness out of you. It does not matter. You start to like collapse the, the pace as long as structurally, mechanically, you know, you're still able to maintain a certain uh, fluency. But yeah, it's just getting really difficult. That's just your body being embarrassed because it's not ready to meet the task demands. However, when we get to the specific or performance period, then we don't want to create that compromise of the pace because we don't want to learn too slow if we're trying to get ready for this race. Uh, it's a really simple but also very, very intelligent and novel way of thinking because what it does is it frees us as distance runners who, and coaches who tend to be overly perfectionists for saying, what are we trying to emphasize and when? And a lot of people don't like the effort-based approach, but it is the only real approach there is. You know, if you look at Lydiard, everything was effort-based. If you look at Igloy, everything was effort-based. Even if you look at Bowerman, right, the time trials were always effort-based, three-quarters effort. What does that mean? Everyone wants to know exactly what that means. Well, if you have maximum being all-out race for that time in your training um, period or training cycle, then three-quarters of that, scale it down. And it's, it's, it's person-dependent. But we crave certainty so much as human beings. And this is what attracts so many people to distance learning and training methodologies that are highly structured, high numerical highly linear in progression is we then lose the capacity to actually evolve and get exponentially better 
because now we're only getting a little bit because we're slaves to the numbers. Yeah, and and that's what you know. That's what we're this whole podcast is is all about, and we've kind of come at it from a different couple different angles, but it's recognizing that our bias as coaches is towards planning. It's recognizing that our bias in coaching is towards like, you know, perfecting the workouts and having all of this, you know, line up how we think it should. That's our bias, right? That's how most of us come at it. Track, cross country, distance running, you know, it, it, it invites this kind of almost mathematical approach, this over-planning approach, because the training is often what we're taught matters so much. The training is what we focus on so much, and rightfully so. But what we have to do is set up guardrails or set up places where we can zoom out and get rid of that bias and zoom out and free ourselves to not becoming a slave to you know the the plan a slave to the watch a slave to the prescription we need to be able to zoom out like an igloy and say yeah you know what we're gonna change this or to lydiard and say you know what this is effort-based you know lydiard was famous for saying also that you know the workout should end when the athlete feels like they could do one more rep right that's that was his indicator in all of these, you know, different prescriptions. And Lydiard gets like the, this is the training model, and you do this, and then you do that, and then you do this. He'd also had this, you know, he's famous for saying, you know what, workout should end when the athlete feels like they could finish one more rep, not going to the well, not when they could barely eke out something. It's saying nope when they could do more one more rep. And Lydiard knew, hey, I'm going to predict this, but it's not always going to be right. And I'm going to have to adjust this. So I think it's like giving yourself that freedom to adjust. And then the flip side of this, I think as applied to athletes as well, is like making sure that your athletes have that freedom to understand that adjustment is an okay thing. It doesn't mean that the workout failed. It doesn't mean that the plan isn't going to work because we now adjusted or modified this. And I think that is also extremely important because a perfectionist coach who thinks that A, B, and C has to occur, you know, or in order to run well, the plan has to go, you know, according to plan in order for the athlete to run well. Their athletes often adopt that same mindset and it creates a fragile athlete when things don't go well, when the plan is deviated, um, which can end in utter, you know, performance blow up. Yeah. I mean, there's a great little story here about what Lydia knew, right? And what Lydia knew was um, this. Here's the story. You know, a reporter once questioned Lydia while Pierce Snell was running a workout in an open field um, and asked uh, how far Snell was running. Lydia answered, I don't know. Next, the reporter asked how fast Snell was running. Lydia answered, I don't know. Then the reporter asked how many repetitions Snell was doing. Lydia answered, I don't know. <laughs> Before another question was asked, Lydia explained to the reporter what really mattered was whether Snell was accomplishing the desired training effect with the appropriate level of effort for the day. And sometimes, you know, we as coaches and runners can be overly meticulous when it comes to measuring and recording 
of detail, right? We get caught up in the latest technology or now the, the latest running gadget or super shoe, what have you. And it's, uh, you know, it's worth recording in useful detail what was planned and then what actually happened in training. But it's also worth taking advantage of the athlete's perception and uh, physical um, and mental and emotional capacity for the day and maximizing it, right? For every successful runner, like with a detailed training diary and utilization of all the gadgets, right? There are dozens upon dozens of unsuccessful runners who employ the same tactic, right? Effective training, as Lydiard knew, comes down to achieving just the desired stimulus on the appropriate level of effort repeated over and over and over again with little interruption for months, years, and even decades. And again, going back to that frequency um, element, frequency is the most determining factor towards adaptation. We know this. And yet we can talk about density, we can talk about volume, we can talk about intensity, but it's the frequency of what you do that determines the direction you'll adapt. Yep. And that's why stacking solid workout after solid workout works so well. I think you had a tweet to... just about this, Steve, didn't you? Like you just like Yeah, I did. I have tweets about everything. I know but... you do. Yes, I did. <laughs> but it's 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 why stacking solid stuff works, right? Because the frequency and consistency uh matters to much higher degree than being perfect on an individual workout and nailing uh one training stimulus or even a couple of training stimuluses or why does canova specials blocks work on a you know two workouts in a day yep yep exactly or why you know the famed uh kenyan training of you know sometimes three runs a day with you know one or two of those being moderate or hard you know it's stacking stuff so yeah, I mean, I, I think we're in agreement here is that frequency, stacking workouts, et cetera, having good solid days is is the key. And the key to getting to that point is to understand that, hey, everything doesn't have perfect have to be perfect. Hey, this perfectionist of we need the plan to go exactly as we need it uh, or as it should needs to be you know thrown out the window and one thing i would suggest young coaches if you're sitting here listening and being like oh are john and steve telling me not to plan no that's not what we're saying but what we're what i would suggest is go back through your training if you keep records hopefully you do look at the plans that you had early on and then look at how much of that training was actually done and if you're up above 90% of it stayed the same, then I would say, ah, you're you're probably looking at you're you're in this perfectionist mode, right? If you changed, you know, all uh, nearly all of it, then ah, either you're a horrible plan, you might look go back and look at your planning structure because you probably are a horrible planner. If you fall somewhere in the middle where you say, you know what, we kept 60, 70% of it, but, you know, changed 30%, I'd probably say you're somewhere in the sweet spot where you're, you're doing a pretty good job of having a broad plan that also includes revision and adjustments as needed. 
So check yourself as a coach in terms of how you're adjusting. If you're adjusting quote unquote enough, or if you're rigid to what, you know, you prescribed or planned. And that's the, you know, the famous Dwight Eisenhower Eisenhower quote, right? Um, The plan is nothing. Planning is everything. And so the rigidity with which you sit down, this set, this plan, this periodized approach, this, we're going to do this on this day. It's a good practice to have because it gives you a map. It gives you an orientation of direction, but then your capacity to revise in the moment as the feedback is coming at you a hundred miles an hour, right? That is the key. Uh, and without that, um, you know, we would be poor. The athletes can be poor for the experience. hundred percent. Couldn't have said it better. So let's, why don't, all right. That was kind of a summary of, of how, you know, of this podcast, if we're talking, okay, let's, do a little bit better job summarizing it up. Okay. Why are perfectionist mindset is holding you and your athletes back? Quite simply, it makes you rigid. It can make you fragile. Same with your athletes, rigid and fragile. What you're trying to do as a coach is to counter that innate bias that we have as distance coaches is counter that innate bias, get over the disease of over planning be able to zoom out, be able to go broad so that you can connect, you know, with different ideas, utilize different tools. And if you do that, you're going to be a better coach. That's my summary. I love it. That sounds good. All right. Nailed it. I'll take that. All right. So um, thanks a lot for listening. We hope that once again, this provided value for you. Again, if you're interested in going broad and learning more about everything coaching, check out the Scholar Program. Promise that it fulfills, you know, that requirement and goes over every single thing that we know about distance running and history training, coaches, etc. So check it out. Until next time. Thanks for listening, and uh, we can't wait to get back and do this again.